Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and I had no idea what I was getting myself into when I started looking into today's case. I fell into a long, dark rabbit hole that I am genuinely concerned I'll never get out of. And now it's your turn. Blah, blah, blah. Small talk sucks. So let's dive in. Lauren Spear was a 20-year-old student at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. She had a long-term boyfriend named Jesse, whom she had been with together for pretty much ever, like back in high school in New York, moved to Indiana so they could both go to the same school kind of forever. That is some real-life, serious high school sweetheart shit right there. Jesse was in a fraternity, and Lauren had her own really close-knit group of friends. They were able to hang out together and apart, and it was healthy. We all know someone who's in a relationship where they're so far up their significant other's butt that they don't know where theirs ends and the other begins, and that wasn't Lauren and Jesse because boundaries. On June 2nd, 2011, there was a basketball game on TV, and everyone and their mom was trying to watch it. I tried looking up exactly which game this might have been. But it looks like it was playoff season, and there were a handful of big games going on, and a lot of them started at 10.30 p.m. Jesse was planning on watching the basketball game and then hanging out with Lauren afterwards. Lauren and her roommate Hadar and another friend David hung out at her apartment for a while at the Smallwood Plaza and around 1230 a.m. on what would now be June 3rd, 2011, headed two blocks north and one block east to their friend Jay's townhouse to watch the basketball game themselves. Jay lived in a row of townhouses called the Five North Townhomes. One might ask why Jesse and Lauren weren't watching the game together since they were both watching the same thing, but we've already been over this. They both live lives separate from one another. Good for them. There's drinking and friends and Lauren's having a good time. A boy named Corey, who Lauren had met two weeks prior at the Indy 500, lived two townhouses down from Jay and joined in on the night's festivities. After about an hour, Corey and Lauren decide to ditch this popsicle stand and take this party to a local bar called Kilroy's. From what I understand, Kilroy's is a 21 and up bar and requires an ID for entry and Lauren used a fake one to get in that night. They continue drinking and head out back where they've turned what could have been a concrete slab or deck into a freaking beach oasis in the middle of the city. The ground is straight up sand and it's not unusual for people to take their shoes off when they're walking around on it. There are palm trees out there, picnic tables, beach chairs, and sometimes I hear they even throw in a little inflatable pool for kicks and giggles. Now, I'm telling you about the Sandpick backyard area because Lauren and Corey leave Kilroy's after about a half an hour and start walking back to Lauren's apartment on North College Avenue, which is only one-tenth of a mile away. But when they leave the bar, she is completely shoeless and unbeknownst to her, along with her shoes, she has left her cell phone behind as well. Look, we've all been there. We've all been wasted. We've all been that girl dancing on a gross, beer-muddied floor with our heels in our hands because they freaking hurt. They're cute, but they suck, and we've all lost shit along the way. And if you haven't, then you're a better adult than me. I was a sloppy young adult, and I'm not afraid to admit it. I actually lost one shoe one time, and I wasn't even at a bar. I found it the next morning in a parking lot during a walk of shame. So if you're looking for a dumpster fire, you look right into my eyes. But let's get back to the case. Corey and Lauren are seen on CCTV footage walking into Smallwood Plaza at 2.27 a.m. where they make their way to the elevators and up to the fifth floor where Lauren's apartment is, but they never make it inside. Once they get off the elevator, Lauren and Corey are met by some of Jesse's fraternity brothers who say that Corey was showing Lauren some inappropriate attention and was being aggressive with her. I shit you not, one of them punched Corey straight in the face. 
The confrontation ends, and instead of going wherever they intended to go, Corey and Lauren go back downstairs. Lauren is seen stumbling out of the elevator and even falling against a wall. A man helped her to her feet and out the door, and the two headed back to Corey's townhouse. It's never confirmed why they were heading back to Lauren's apartment. We just know that they decided it wasn't important enough to keep going there after he got punched in the face. Were they going to grab another pair of shoes? Were they just going to hang out? Was there something more romantic planned? The only person who knows this is Corey, and I've never seen it mentioned anywhere. CCTV footage shows who we can only assume is Corey throwing a very drunk Lauren over his shoulder, still barefoot, and carrying her most of the way back to his place. At some point during this process, Lauren loses pretty much the only thing she had left in her possession, her keys, which was attached to a little mini wallet big enough for some cards and an ID. When they get there, Corey's roommate Mike is like, holy shit, Corey's drunk as fuck. It clearly just got punched in the face. So he goes into caretaker mode and tucks Corey into bed. Lauren wants to keep the party going, but Mike isn't about that life right now. He's been in the whole night working on schoolwork and is super sober and that's the worst. Being the only sober person in a room is like being in a room full of hungry toddlers who all need a diaper change. It's a blast when you're one of the toddlers, but otherwise it's like a cruel prison. So Mike walks Lauren over to Jay's townhouse where she had been earlier. While she's there at around 4.15 a.m., she realizes she doesn't have her cell phone and uses Jay's phone to call David, who she had been with at her apartment and Jay's townhouse earlier in the evening, to see if he might know where her cell phone was, but he didn't answer his phone. It's at this point, Jay's like, girl, take a little nappy nap on my couch and sleep tonight off and we'll get life situated tomorrow. It's super late. You've got no shoes on or a cell phone. Let's call it a night. But Lauren insists on going home. Jay allegedly tells her that he'll watch her walk down West 11th Street where his townhouse was until she turns onto North College Avenue where her apartments were. But if she stumbled at all, he would make her stay. But Jay watches her walk down the street and make a right onto North College and goes to bed. Little did he know that he would be the last person to ever see Lauren Spearer. A friend of Lauren's who lives in her building and is part of her circle of friends noticed that Lauren wasn't responding to any of their texts. So around 11 a.m., she walked over to her apartment door and knocked to see if she was okay, but no one answered. Around the same time, Lauren's boyfriend, Jesse, was starting to get worried, too. Remember, they were supposed to hang out the night before after the basketball game, but he never heard back from her. So at around 2.30 a.m., he called it a night himself and went to bed. After calling and texting several times, he finally gets a call from Lauren's cell, and for a second, he's probably relieved. That's until he realizes it's not Lauren on the other end of the phone. It's an employee of Kilroy's bar telling him that whoever's phone this is, they had left it there the night before. Panicking, he calls Lauren's roommate Hadar while she's in class and asks if he's seen Lauren, and she hadn't. Not that she had been looking for her, though. Her morning had consisted of waking up and getting ready for school. So Jesse rushes over and meets Hadar at her class to get her key to their apartment and goes over to check on his girlfriend, but Lauren isn't there. At 4.30 p.m., exactly 12 hours after she had last been seen, Lauren Spearer is officially reported missing. Locals say that the area between the five north townhomes and Smallwood Plaza is pretty low traffic during summer break, but even still, they wouldn't walk that route alone at night. That being said, there's another young Indiana University student who says that she was in the same exact area that Lauren was last seen in just an hour earlier and didn't notice anything unusual or anything that made her feel uncomfortable. 
And while the topic is still hot, another local warns that there are a few apartment complexes and dorms in the area that have a reputation for sexual assaults. On top of all of this, there are a substantial amount of registered sex offenders in the area. and the 23 square miles that make up Bloomington, I found 182 registered sex offenders. That's almost eight sex offenders per mile. That's basically a sex offender for every two football fields that you walk. Ugh. As early as June 4th, Lauren's parents have flown in and are helping pass out flyers in the area to anyone who will take one. Police have searched the area multiple times. The search area is pretty small because they have security footage of her leaving her complex and they have security footage of her around the five North townhomes. Bird's eye view, it's a solid three square blocks. The Indiana Public Media adds that police have spoken to residents and business owners in the area asking if they may have seen or heard something and they've also released canines to track her scent. This has never been confirmed, but Bloomington locals say that the dogs tracked Lauren sent to a gravel parking lot about 100 yards from Jay's building and then lost it. Now, when a dog loses a scent, my first thought is always that the person got into a vehicle. And if that scent trail went cold in a parking lot, that isn't absurdly off base as far as assumptions go. But this parking lot is on the west side of the five north townhomes. If Jay says she went east and then turned on to North College, why is her scent being picked up west in a dirty old gravel parking lot? A part of me wonders if she made it somewhat close to her apartment before realizing that she had lost her keys at some point after Corey threw her over his shoulder. Could she have doubled back to go looking for her keys? The Smallwood Plaza apartments require a key card for entry, so whenever she did realize she didn't have her keys, she likely would have gone back looking for them, right? Obviously, police locate her phone and shoes at Kilroy's, but they later find her keys in that little mini wallet on the railing of an apartment building near where she was last seen. A student named AJ claims that he found it on the sidewalk a little before 3 a.m., which matches the timeline between Corey and Lauren leaving Smallwood and heading to the Five North townhomes perfectly. AJ says his friend picked it up and placed them on the railing where they were found on, and when he passed them a few hours later, they were still there. If Lauren did go back to look for her keys, it's clear that she never found them. We have to consider that at this point in time, Lauren is realizing it's extremely late. She's alone. She doesn't have any shoes on. She doesn't have a phone to call for help, and she doesn't have her keys to get into her apartment building. We can imagine she's got a gut-sinking feeling that she just wants to go home, but we know that this doesn't happen. Let's take a minute to address any victim shaming that tends to wiggle its way into comments of this case anywhere that you see it. Lauren didn't do anything that damn near every college student hadn't done at least once or a dozen times. She was hanging out with people she knew. She was having a good time. She lost her shoes along the way, which is way less embarrassing than accidentally only losing one, which we all know I managed to pull off at a college I didn't even go to. Lauren isn't stupid. She didn't ask for whatever happened to her. She was young, she was having fun, and she was taken advantage of. And as a human being, we have the right to assume that when you're vulnerable, someone will reach out and help you. Unfortunately, sometimes the bad guy gets to you before the hero does. Fox 59 and the Indiana Daily News announced that they're going to be searching local lakes for Lauren. They're searching Lake Griffey, Lake Monroe, and Lake Lemon. Another search party is scheduled to meet on June 5th at Lauren's Smallwood apartment complex and is expected to go on from 1 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. It's been about 24 hours since Lauren went missing and she's already had police search the area more than once, pulled out the canines, searched multiple lakes, and organized a full-blown search party. This is easily one of the fastest calls to action that I have ever ever seen.
Her case is getting an insane amount of press, and I'm talking celebrity press. Ryan Seacrest, Alyssa Milano, Denise Richards, Donnie Wahlberg, and even Brittany Snow have tweeted about Lauren's disappearance. A Finding Lauren Facebook group has accumulated 20,000 members, and an event is created called Urgent. Please help spread the word about Lauren Spears' disappearance. Can you guess how many people RSVP'd? 70 freaking thousand people. You didn't guess that. No one would guess that. That's insanity. Someone within this community is a marketing guru and they're using their powers for good. On Tuesday, June 7th, shit gets real when police are seen using battering rams to knock down two different doors near the Smallwood Plaza lobby. In their defense, they did ask for a key. In the end, they seized two hard drives. Everyone's obvious first thought was, why in the hell are police using battering rams to get hard drives from an apartment complex? The only thing anyone can think they might be after is security footage, and surely the complex would be cooperating with police, right? You would be wrong. The New York Post says that the security company in charge of the cameras at the complex refused to release the footage without a warrant. What the fuck? Anyways, the police obviously get a warrant and asked for a key and waited and waited and waited and then went boom boom to the doors and left with what they came for. The complex actually had the balls to complain about the thousands of dollars in damages unnecessarily caused when police breached the doors. I mean, all you had to do was open them. And their bullshittery isn't helping their reputation at all. A review left on ApartmentRatings.com reveals that Smallwood used to have security guards, but claims that the manager decided they didn't need them anymore and got rid of them. The reviewer says that the guards were known for stopping young students they thought were too drunk to leave, but by the time Lauren disappeared, they were no longer employed by the complex. The review also noted that the manager wasn't cooperating with police in helping to find Lauren. That's not a good look. I'll give credit where credit's due, though. Whether genuine or damage control, Smallwood Plaza winds up offering $17,500 in reward money for information leading to the resolution of Lauren's case. But back to those hard drives. The police were looking for the footage of the altercation between Lauren's boyfriend's frat brothers and Corey on the fifth floor of the complex. Girl goes to bar with boy. Boy goes to apartment with girl. Boy and girl don't get to apartment because girl's boyfriend's frat brothers punch boy in the face. Boy and girl leave apartment. Yeah, they might want to look into that. And while looking into it, they realized that Corey was actually on a no trespass list for the property as a whole. They started it to keep people away who had historically caused problems with the residents in the past. Corey made it onto the list after being arrested for public intoxication in the building on Halloween of 2010. He added insult to injury when he was caught taking a big old pee in the parking garage on May 1st of 2011, something Lauren may not have known anything about only having met him two weeks prior. Considering all this chaos at the complex surrounding Lauren's disappearance and the hefty reward being offered, you'd think the place would be littered with her missing persons posters, but no. On the fifth floor where Lauren lived, there was one single poster posted right by the elevator doors, none on the walls, none on the doors of her neighbors, or even on her own apartment, nothing, just a single sheet of paper. LOHUD gives an update on police's dive into the people Lauren was with that night that she went missing and notes that they searched homes, cars, credit card statements, and freaking phone records already. This department must have Harry freaking Potter on payroll because getting cell phone records this quickly is some kind of magic I've never seen before. Even in much more recent cases, poor Heather Saccone's family had to wait 18 months before they could close the case because they were waiting on cell records. 
The police are considering anyone Lauren spent time with that night a person of interest and are issuing lie detector tests to anyone who will agree to one. They also start asking for DNA samples, many of which the boys give voluntarily. And I question why they're collecting DNA samples when it doesn't sound like there's much, if any, physical evidence in the case, but I have a couple theories. One, they're collecting it now so they have samples for comparison later, or two, they're seeing who won't agree to give a sample. Obviously, because of all this, attorneys are being retained at the speed of light. Corey hires an attorney, Jay hires an attorney, Jesse even hires an attorney. And these aren't just any attorneys either. These kids came from some pretty affluent families. Jay's attorney represented Mike freaking Tyson at one point. As soon as the boys started lawyering up, everyone started getting more suspicious than they were before. But honestly, if your college-age kid was a person of interest because they were around the night a girl disappeared, you'd probably get him an attorney too, especially if you had money to burn. Corey's attorney is the most vocal of all the attorneys and makes the first public statement. Now try not to roll your eyes, but he claims that Corey has no memory of anything between five minutes before getting punched in the face and waking up the next morning. He says that Corey had bruising, a swollen jaw, and it's possible that he had a concussion, which would explain his memory memory loss. This all being said, Corey never saw a doctor for his injuries that night. A senior at IU who saw Corey on June 4th told USA Today that despite there being all this talk about some big altercation the night before, Corey didn't look like anything had happened to him. In another article in 2013 by USA Today, Corey kind of contradicts his late attorney, saying, I never said that. You're taking statements that were said by my lawyer. I never said I did or I didn't. And let's be real, if he has failed to ever mention on his own accord that he lost his memory, and he's not confirming that he did while correcting people when quoting his once attorney, I think we can read between the lines here. On June 9th, police receive an anonymous tip that they feel specific enough to take seriously, and it leads them to Lake Monroe. They pack up their divers and take sonar equipment through the waters, but come up with nothing. Not long after this, it comes to light that a well-known and well-liked homeless man in the area named Franklin Road Dog Crawford reported hearing a woman scream around 4.35 a.m. the morning Lauren went missing. And the timing couldn't be more perfect. It would have been exactly when she was on North College on her way back to Smallwood Plaza. He made police aware of what he heard, but that's the last we really hear about this specific tip. Authorities feel like they're running into too many dead ends and come up with an idea to somewhat recreate the scene. One week to the day that Lauren was last seen, they set up a checkpoint on North College Avenue and stop anyone and everyone who crosses their paths. They stop people on foot, people riding bikes, and cars passing by. They talk to them about the early morning hours of the 4th and what they may have heard or seen, and they pass out flyers with Lauren's information on it. In total, they made contact with 135 vehicles, and while it doesn't seem like they made a ton of tangible process during this event, they make it clear that they're considering doing it again soon. The FBI is eventually called in to assist in the search. The U.S. Marshals do a special sex offender search in the area questioning the hefty number of registered sex offenders we discussed earlier, but believe it or not, that too was a dead end. The Courier-Journal speaks to Ken Aquinette, who's an associate professor at Indiana University, Purdue University at Indianapolis. That is a fucking mouthful. Kenna specializes in researching serial killers. She is living our dream life. Anyways, she says that she'd be surprised if Lauren was attacked by a sexual predator who just happened to cross paths with her that night. She says that sexual predators generally spend a lot of time searching for and observing their victims and thinks it's more likely that Lauren was abducted by someone she knew or by someone who lives in the area. Police continue their search, diving into dumpsters, executing countless search warrants at apartments, homes, vehicles, and more, and do additional canine searches. 
Lauren's parents asked that landowners check their fields, woods, and barns and encourage them to contact law enforcement if they need any assistance. And even after all of this, police said that they're not losing hope and that they do, in fact, believe that Lauren is still alive. And while I want to believe them and take them at their word, I've been doing this long enough to know when police are being optimistic. At this point, they don't have any evidence pointing to Lauren being dead. Therefore, even though she's been missing without a trace for quite a while now with no social media activity, no phone activity, no bank activity, nothing, they're going to stay positive and keep hope alive to keep the searches alive and to avoid stomping on the souls of everyone who loves loves and cares for Lauren. Eventually, authorities publicly announced that they're giving consideration to the rumors that Lauren may have OD'd on something that night, and that one or more of the boys with her panicked and disposed of her body somewhere. This was the top rumor flying around, like the everyone knows this is what happened kind of rumor. One local IU student who didn't know Lauren directly but had been around her and knew of the group of friends she hung with insinuated that her friends lived a pretty well-known party lifestyle that did sometimes include occasional drug use. Lauren actually had something called long QT syndrome, which is a heart condition that causes fast and chaotic heart rhythms. That coupled with copious amounts of alcohol and the rumors of cocaine use, it's possible that she had a medical event that led to her death or the alcohol and drug combination led to an overdose. All are viable possibilities and authorities tell LOHUD that it's crucial they keep an open mind. The ever-famous Texas EquiSearch comes in and brings out all the stops. They use ground penetrating radar, sonar equipment, drones, you name it. You know these guys have no quit. They retrace Lauren's every step the night that she disappeared. They're looking for anything. Drops of blood, clothing, jewelry, anything that doesn't look like it belongs on a city street. But they turn up nothing. Another press conference is held, and this time it's a little different. This time they have something. For so long, they've been sharing little to nothing, no CCTV footage, no evidence seized other than the two hard drives from her apartment building, nothing, but this day is different. They present the public with a photo of a white four-door Chevy Silverado with a short bed and some equipment in the back and what looks like it could be a logo or some kind of writing on the side of it. The truck circled back twice between 4.14 a.m. and 4.24 a.m. and never once stopped for cameras to get a quality photo, not even at the red light it blew through. And people dive into this photo like it is a pool full of pudding. They're eating it up from every angle. They're zooming in. They're analyzing shadows. They're trying to identify the equipment in the back. Some people say they see someone being held down. Some people say they see someone in the back seat. But I've seen the photo. It's a white truck with some shit in the back. And that's really all you can take from it. I think police were more so hoping that someone would know that one of their friends or family members was out that night or in the area and drives that kind of truck or that truck exactly and might call in. And 500 people did. Police wind up tracking down the owners. And as much as I hate to tell you, this truck also winds up being a dead end. The searches continue and continue and continue. Bodies are found every now and then, and every single time it comes across the news, everyone wonders if it might be Lauren. Some hoping for closure and some hoping against hope that Lauren is still out there somewhere and that she'll come home one day. But a year passes, and then another, and then another, and nothing. Lauren is still missing, and her family and friends are no closer to getting any answers than they were on June 3rd of 2011. Eventually, Lauren's parents file a civil suit against Corey, Mike, and Jay, claiming they had a duty of care when it came to the very obviously intoxicated Lauren, whom they allowed to walk home that night. 
But the Indy Star reported in 2013 that the judge threw the case out, saying that the boys weren't negligent when it came to Lauren that night, and that Lauren, too, had a responsibility of caring for herself, even if she was drunk. Theories are thrown around throughout the years, the most common one being the overdose theory, but honestly, let's think this through. College kids are stupid, and most of the people around her that night, with the exception of Mike, had also been drinking. I have a hard time believing that somehow they got their times all aligned with the CCTV footage and then disposed of her body without a single witness, and not a single one of them threw the other under the bus for any of the reward money. Money talks, and so far, none of the people she was with that night have. Another theory is that this is much bigger than we realize. Remember that homeless man, Franklin Road Dog Crawford, who reported hearing a scream around the time Lauren went missing on the 3rd? His body was found just a few days later in a dumpster. Is it a coincidence or is it connected? We may literally never know. There is almost nothing about his death available to the public, and maybe it's because he was homeless and it was just kind of brushed under the news rug, but Franklin was loved in that little community in Bloomington, so much so that they wound up naming a new housing development after him, one that was dedicated to serving people who have faced chronic homelessness. Their website reads, and I quote, Crawford Apartments was named in honor of Franklin Road Dog Crawford. Those who knew Frank loved his sense of humor and lively spirit. Cycling between the local hospitals and streets, Frank suffered from many ailments and would have been an ideal tenant for this apartment complex. It was only discovered that Frank had passed away when a neighbor found his body in a dumpster. He had literally been thrown away. This crushes my heart on so many levels, but it also warms it in so many ways, knowing that someone who had so little to his name made such a huge impact on the community around him, even after death. The next theory actually involves the serial killer Israel Keys. Israel was so good at what he did because he planned everything in advance and then picked his victims at random. He didn't have a pattern. He didn't stick to a state. And because of this, he is thought to have killed 8 to 12 people before being caught in 2012. Israel would travel from state to state hiding kill buckets in random places, under large rocks, sometimes buried, sometimes deep in the woods, all over. And then he would come back, retrieve the kill bucket, and then kill a random stranger or two. During the extensive investigation into his travels to try and tie him to any more unsolved murders, they noticed that Israel Keys was captured in a rental car on an Indiana toll road on June 3rd, 2011. Now, from what I understand, the only toll road in Indiana is quite a ways from where Lauren was last seen, but it's still one hell of a coincidence. However, the most compelling theory I have found, and one that I think is the most plausible scenario, involves a possible serial killer in Bloomington, Indiana. Young girls started going missing from the Bloomington area as early as 2000. On May 31st, 2000, Jill Berman, a student at IU, went for a bike ride and never came back. Her remains were found three years later by a hunter in a wooded area in Morgan County, just half an hour away. She had been shot in the back of the head. A man named John was convicted of her murder in 2016. However, the conviction was scrutinized by a lot of people. They said there wasn't any real physical evidence linking him to the crime in the public, well, a very vocal group of the public, felt like the wrong man had been convicted, which to them meant that her killer was still out there somewhere. And they may have been on to something. In October of 2019, just four months ago, a judge vacated John's conviction. The state has until January 28th of this month to either retry him or release him. 
On September 18, 2010, Crystal Grubb disappeared. Her body was found a few weeks later by a farmer in his cornfield just north of Bloomington. She had been strangled. No one has ever been convicted of her murder. We know that on June 3, 2011, Lauren Spear disappeared after a night of drinking with her friends and has never been seen since. Her body has never been found and no one has ever been charged with anything in relation to her case. On September 1, 2012, WTHR reports that a woman who shall remain nameless was abducted and driven against her will to Lake Griffey, where he beat and sexually assaulted her. He left her in the parking lot and drove away, and she was able to get help by walking to a nearby home and calling 911. A rape kit was performed and a DNA sample was collected, but as far as I can tell, it was never tested, and had it been, we may be having a different conversation. On April 24th of 2015, an IU student named Hannah Wilson went missing after a night out at Kilroy's. Sound familiar? Hannah was last seen walking between 8th and North Dunn Street, only five blocks from where Lauren Spearer was last seen. Hannah was found the next day near another lake you've heard mentioned in this episode, Lake Lemon, just half an hour away from campus. A man named Daniel Messel was convicted of Hannah's murder and later convicted of the abduction, beating, and sexual assault of the victim who shall not be named on September 1st of 2012 as well. WTHR and USA Today dove deep into Daniel's past and it was like the guy was born onto a red flag, wrapped up in one, and then carried one around with him every day for the rest of his creepy life. In 1985, he was charged with hitting a man in the face with a small bat, as if the small matters. In 1986, he was charged on two separate occasions, once for battery and once for confinement, in relation to his teenage girlfriend. In 1991, he was charged with battery two times, involving a different teenage girlfriend. According to USA Today, he hit her, slapped her, bit her, and pulled her hair. He spent a whole whopping year in jail for that one. In 1994, he tried chasing two men with his car and in the process crashed it and then left the scene. Of all the things wrong with this situation, his only charge here was for leaving the scene of an accident. In 1996, he was sentenced to eight years in prison after USA Today reports that he beat a woman with a freaking two-by-four, severing an artery and breaking her nose. But we all know how the justice system works and this shit stain was out in just three years. For a solid seven years, he seemed to stay out of trouble, but we all know that old habits die hard, and in 2006, he followed a man out of a female friend's apartment and beat the ever-living shit out of him, like grabbing his hair and slamming his head into the ground kind of assault. He pled guilty to disorderly conduct and then went on with his life. USA Today reports that Daniel then settled down in Bloomington and decided he wanted to pretend to be a sugar daddy and set himself up an account on SugarDaddyForMe.com, specifically saying he was seeking IU co-eds, listing his income as $100,000 to $200,000 a year. Bro was making $32,000 a year at a print shop. IDS News got a hold of a jail informant who says that he did time with Daniel in 1996 and later started running to him at bars around Bloomington in 2006. 
He says that at one point, Daniel told him that he would troll campus wearing an IU shirt with campus security written on it trying to pick up women, which may hold some weight. They found the clothes Daniel was wearing on the night that he killed Hannah Wilson, and he was wearing an IU sweatshirt. The same informant says a friend, who we can only assume is Daniel, hit Lauren Spearer with his car and hid her body along Highway 46, relocating it about a year later in 2012 to the Brown County area, which is only half an hour east of Bloomington. The informant seems to come with receipts, too, saying that he has proof. Photos of two of the IDs found with Lauren, one with the name Rebecca on it, and we know that Lauren got into Kilroy's with a fake ID that night. According to WTHR, at least six women reported to police that there was a man who regularly rode around the streets late at night asking young drunk girls for directions and then trying to get them into his car. There are even some girls who claim to have gotten into the car with him only to be attacked but managed to get out and run away. This person was around campus so frequently that he was given the nickname of The Creeper. One girl was so freaked out by him that she almost made him her project. She knew something was wrong when he drove up onto the sidewalk to accost her one night. Not long after, she watched him do it to another group of girls. That night, she was able to get the make and model of his vehicle and his license plate, and boom! Hours later, police pull him over, and he literally has his pants down. Any guesses as to who this night prowler turned out to be? Daniel fucking Messel. Police wound up mapping out his hunting area where they believe he targeted his victims, and I'll show you a photo of it in Lauren's highlight at the top of my Instagram at the Heather Ashley, but it is right where Lauren lived. She is one block over from his proposed hunting zone. None of these girls had any clue that this man was a murderer, that he would wind up spending the rest of his life in jail for murdering at least one of their fellow students and sexually assaulting another. They had no idea he wasn't who he said he was. They had no idea that he was actually filming himself asking these young drunk girls for directions in hopes that they would get into the car with him. They had no idea that he had a long history of violence against women. Had Lauren run into him while she was searching for her keys? Had he asked her for directions? Had he offered her a ride around the block to look for them? We might not ever know. Lauren's case is still unsolved to this day. Her parents are still waiting for those daily phone calls they used to get from their daughter. Jessie only has memories of the long-term love that they once had. And the boys that she was with that night still have to deal with the fingers being pointed at them because of who they were with the night that something terrible happened. Lauren is all of us. She was young and fun and trusting and forgetful. She didn't do anything out of the ordinary. Hindsight will always be 2020, but she was just living her young college life the same way everyone else seemed to be living theirs. Hers just happened to take a turn that no one ever could have expected. If we take anything away from Lauren's story, have a sober buddy, someone who can keep up with your shoes and phones, who can cut you off when you don't want to be, someone who can make sure you get home and tuck you into bed safely, someone who knows where you are at all times, even if you don't need a designated driver, have a sober buddy handy just in case. We want to believe we live in a world where we can defend ourselves and where this kind of thing only happens to other people, but Lauren is no different than the rest of us. If you have any information about the disappearance of Lauren Spearer, please call 812-339-4477 or email helpfindlauren at gmail.com. Check out Lauren Spears' highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley for any and all photos and maps pertaining to this case. And join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern for Crime Talk Live, where you go live with me and we discuss what you think happened to Lauren. 
If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for one whole dollar a month, your episodes will always be ad-free. And if you need a little more true crime in your life, for just $5 a month, your episodes are ad-free, and you get a bonus exclusive episode each month that only Patreon subscribers get. Last week, Patreon subscribers got an exclusive episode on missing Akia Eggleston. I'll be bringing you a new case one week from today, and I cannot wait, but until then, we out. (laughs) 